0: Yeah, I don't think that seeking labiaplasty has anything to do with self-harm. I think the vast majority of the time when women are seeking labiaplasty, they they are not aware of any serious risks. I know I personally did a lot of research to learn about risks and all I read was that there was no risk to sexual function. Had I known that there were any risks, I would not have had surgery. Uh, just recently, I saw a plastic surgeon claim that there was no risk to sexual function. And on top of that, she referred to labiaplasty as self-care. So quite the opposite of self-harm. And so I think it's really important to understand that. It's important to understand the intentions of the women who are having these surgeries. I don't think that they hate themselves. And I think that it's sort of degrading to take that stance about a group of women that is generally just getting misled by medical authorities that pretty much everybody trusts. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm talking with Jessica Pinn. She is the founder and CEO of the sexual health equity project where she advocates for better coverage of vulvar anatomy in medical literature and curricula and jessica's been doing great work as you could say an activist or an advocate because she discovered the hard way through personal experience that medical professionals are woefully undertrained in female genital anatomy jessica's a, a brave soul who is a uh, received a lot of publicity, both positive and negative. So like me and some of my other guests, she's also a survivor of cancel culture. So we might talk about that a little bit today. Jessica, welcome. It's great to have your expertise on the show today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So for people who aren't familiar with your backstory, would you be comfortable sharing the circumstances leading up to your advocacy?
0: Yeah, so when I was barely 18, I was misled by false information used by doctors to promote labiaplasty online. Um, so I got the impression that I was abnormal because my labia minora protruded. Um, doctors say that labia minora that protrude beyond the labia majora are quote unquote hypertrophic. Hypertrophy means excessively developed, All right? So I read that I had excessive labia minora and that. "Quote unquote hypertrophy is caused by sex, masturbation, aging, and excess male hormones." None of those claims are true. Um, I read that they are considered unfeminine and embarrassing, and so I felt very ashamed and desperate to "quote unquote" correct the issue, which is the terminology that they use. And So I sought a labiaplasty, which was done by an OBGYN who was recommended as the best OBGYN surgeon at the hospital. Um, He is very well-respected. And what he did is he completely amputated my labia minora and he cut the frenulum, um, which is the part that comes off the clitoral glands um, and attaches the clitoral glands to the labia minora. And he also performed a clitoral hood reduction without my consent, and I lost clitoral sensation. Um, and after my surgery, I was told that my loss of sensation was all in my head, and that it could not have happened, um, and that I just needed to relax, uh, that I needed to see a sex therapist, and that I just needed to fall in love. So what I did eventually is I taught myself the anatomy. And I realized that doctors were not learning it. And so it took me a very long time, but eventually I started effectively advocating for the anatomy to be taught. Um, And so I've gotten 12 major medical textbooks changed. I've gotten board certification for OBGYNs and plastic surgeons changed. I've gotten maintenance, sorry, maintenance of certification for OBGYNs changed. So basically... Um, They are now incentivized to get up to date. Uh, They're incentivized to read an article about clitoral anatomy and answer questions. They're still not required to learn it. Um, I, you know, I got anatomy posters updated and anatomy apps updated as well, you know, all with the goal to get doctors better educated.
1: Wow. Jessica, that's, that's a powerful story. I, so I, some listeners might've heard my conversation with Simon Essler. Um, he made a film called Cut Daughters of the West that was on this topic. And so this feels like a really valuable follow-up conversation. Simon and I actually mentioned you in our conversation. And I know that you might have had some critique of an aspect of his film, which I welcome you to share um, when the time is right. But I just want to sort of say that this is a, a good follow-up to that because Simon and I talked about you know, girls going through this. And here you are, um, a, a grown woman, clearly very intelligent who went through this yourself at such a young age. Um, This is really happening, right? And and before I watched Simon's film and before I came across your work, I had no idea this was happening. I've been very focused on the gender-affirming care stuff, but even girls without gender dysphoria nowadays um, and even you know nearly twenty years ago when this happened to you, have been made to feel like there's something wrong with their normal female anatomy, and that in order to be be normal, healthy, beautiful, desirable, that they need to have their body parts altered in these ways with with tragic results in some cases. So you had this personal experience where you learn the hard way through through loss and medical malpractice, the doctors really aren't properly educated about female anatomy. And what a hero's journey to to take that trauma that you went through and do something so meaningful with it, to try to stop this from happening to other people by making sure that doctors are properly educated. I really want to congratulate you on your work and what you've done with your personal suffering. Thank you. I did want to create space just in case there was something you had to say about Simon's film, because I feel like something happened on Twitter where you like wanted to correct something that he said. And I know that Simon would be open to hearing what you had to say.
0: Yeah, I don't think that seeking labiaplasty has anything to do with self-harm. I think the vast majority of the time when women are seeking labiaplasty, they, they are not aware of any serious risks. I know I personally did a lot of research to learn about risks and all I read was that there was no risk to sexual function. Had I known that there were any risks, I would not have had surgery. Uh, Just recently, I saw a plastic surgeon claim that there was no risk to sexual function. And on top of that, she referred to labiaplasty as self-care. So quite the opposite of self-harm. And so I think it's really important to understand that. It's important to understand the intentions. Of the women who are having these surgeries, I don't think that they hate themselves. And I think that it's sort of degrading to take that stance about a group of women that is generally just getting misled by medical authorities that pretty much everybody trusts. Right. So I was actually 17 when I stumbled upon labioplasty advertisements and I did a lot of research and I read peer reviewed medical literature. And I did not think that peer-reviewed medical journals would publish false information about vulvas. So when I read that, you know, protruding labia minora were called hypertrophy, that sounded like a disease. That sounded like a serious problem. Now, it turns out over half the female population has hypertrophy. So if I had known that, I definitely would not have had surgery But at the time, you know, it sounded like a problem. It was described as unfeminine and embarrassing. And peer-reviewed medical journal articles claimed that protruding labia minora were caused by sex and masturbation, which, you know, at that age, I, you know, I felt ashamed because I thought, oh, no, everyone is going to think that I look like a giant slut, (laughs) you know? Like these days, I wouldn't worry about people thinking I had a lot of sexual partners or that I masturbated. But at the time, that was mortifying.
1: It really is so, so reckless, irresponsible, and misleading. And and the way you phrase that, that people have referred to it as self-care, makes me think about all the things we do in our culture and many cultures Uh, with advanced technologies, as women that we think of as self-care, but that are also related to beauty and that are sometimes painful or expensive. You know, what we do to remove or alter body hair. Um, Women who get lash extensions, hair extensions, doing things to your nails. Um, There's really no end of, of services that people are happy to sell you to make you feel more feminine and there is this kind of attitude in our culture that that is self-care. Now, personally, I'm not one of these women who enjoys going to the nail salon spending money on having chemicals applied to my body so, so that I, you know, only to chip away a few days later. But there are women who think of that as self-care. I think of that as self-torture. Same with, you know, getting my eyebrows waxed or whatever. I don't want to do that to myself, you know. <laughs> but um but when you put it that way, and I'm so glad you did, it really kind of shines a light on how the more technology we have for women to have these kind of beauty procedures, the further it goes. And then it that is being sold as this lie to girls to, to you know encourage them to go as far as to modify their perfectly normal and healthy bodies because they were misled. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you and that that's happening to so many women still. So um, how did you accomplish so much? You've gotten 12 medical textbooks changed. You've gotten board certifications changed. How did you get organized and figure out how to accomplish those things?
0: Um, well, I, you know, I analyzed medical literature in order to understand what happened to me. And it actually took me a long time because I was traumatized and I was afraid that whatever I might try to do to change things wouldn't work, which is funny to look back on. But, you know, I used to take a no to, you know, me asking for updates as, you know, telling me that what happened to me didn't matter and wasn't worth preventing. And so that was really hard and, you know, probably the hardest thing about finally trying to move forward and, you know, push for change. Um, was, you know, having to deal with that no and having to keep trying. Um, As far as how I did things, you know, I just, uh, my goal was to get doctors educated. So like, for one, I wanted surgeons who operate on vulvas to learn anatomy that they operate on. And then the other thing that I've tried to advocate for is for surgeons to not misinform Um, Right, because they use blatant medical misinformation to advertise procedures. And I have focused mainly on the anatomy part because I feel like that's the least controversial part, you know. Um, And I focused on the clitoris. And uh, the reason I have gone after textbooks is because when I first reached out to professional medical organizations, they would not do anything. And so getting textbooks changed was just another thing I could come up with. In the course of my advocacy, I have just done everything I could come up with to do. And a lot of it has been maybe a little bit weird. You know, like at one point I met with a head of patient safety at the hospital that my dad works at. So my dad is a plastic surgeon. So that helped a little. But what's funny is he actually had no idea how to get any changes made when this started. So it was actually me who figured out how medicine is organized, you know, who dictates, you know, how privileging works, how board certification works. For some reason, my I guess it never occurred to my dad that he could change those things, right? Like, like there's a group of people on the American board of OBGYN and they decide what OBGYNs have to know, you know, and then there's you know, A group of people in charge of the American College of OBGYN, and they dictate the core curricula for OBGYNs and they publish committee opinions. So I got them to change their committee opinion on female genital cosmetic surgery. It still misinforms just in new ways, right? It's hard to get them to get things right. So that's been really interesting, is even when I get changes made. It's rarely done right. Like, there are still always mistakes, even in the updates, right? Um, But yeah, so I guess I just, you know, I just figured out, okay, I can just look up the people who author the textbook, author and edit the textbook, and email them. So I've pretty much done most of my advocacy by just emailing. And I've done a lot wrong, (laughs) Right. But I just figured, okay, there are people behind all of these decisions, and so I just have to get to those people, or I need to get to somebody who can get to that person, you know.
1: So that's Incredible. how I do it. Email can be such a powerful tool. I try to remember that because I get I get so flooded with emails, When I try to remember it's like there's so much you can accomplish this way, and... And anyone can do it, right? Anyone can do what you did about any issue they care about. They can do their research as to, well, who knows what about this? Who makes decisions? Have they heard from their constituents in a way? I mean, you know, we have our elected representatives and we're their constituents, but also these people who sit on boards in some ways, they're like, they're kind of like our representatives too, right? They're the ones representing the decision making in certain industries. So that that just sounds so impressive that you took that upon yourself to just kind of figure it out and and reach out to people. So um so it sounds like one of the myths uh, excuse me myths that you've busted is the myth of hypertrophy that according to the definitions of hypertrophy that were being provided normal women have abnormal growth So how can that be, right? If the average woman's labia are too big, then how do you know they're too big? Sounds like that's one of the myths that you've busted. Um, And then you've also provided accurate information about the shape of the clitoris. Um,
0: Yeah. So basically when it comes to hypertrophy, doctors will say all labia minora are normal. And so one problem was when I was 17, I had read that it was recommended to tell all patients that they were normal, no matter how their labia minora looked. Meanwhile, I was reading that all protruding labia minora are considered hypertrophic and excess, right? So doctors to this day will say all labia minora are normal, that labia minora come in all shapes and sizes, and then they will say if they protrude, then they're excess and they are hypertrophic then they will benefit from getting reduced. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, benefit. I mean, what does that mean? It seems like it's been sold as as if there's a mental health benefit, as if you'll feel better about yourself. Like this is what you need to do for your self-esteem.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean- They will say things like protruding labia menorah cause distance in relationships. Stanford said that they cause a dark cloud over relationships. So even very prestigious institutions are publishing this sort of thing. Um, I've seen them called (laughs) unacceptable. Um, Yeah, I've seen them. Sorry, I I just
1: want to make a joke. Like, I just just want to employ some dark humor. Um, And I'm totally going to mess it up because I'm already laughing. But I'm just thinking, like... So I'm, I'm a marriage and family therapist, right? And I just want to like crack a joke about how many couples come to see me because of the dark cloud cast by the woman's hypertrophic labia minor. I'm sorry. That's not a problem I've ever heard of in marriage counseling. Yeah. And that was Um, on
0: Stanford medical school's website or Stanford medicine's website. Wow. It's shocking. Um, (laughs) And they'll say, um, you know, that they cause self-esteem problems. Um, that they prevent women from engaging in certain activities, you know, because like if women are too self-conscious and they won't want to let their partners go down on them. But the way that it's written is as if the protruding labia minora like actually stopped these activities from happening. Um, They'll talk about how they cause problems during sex. However, a recent study showed that there is no correlation between objective labia minora size and physical complaints. And most physical complaints are sexual complaints. So the majority of women saying that they have a physical problem with their labia minora are complaining of a sexual problem. And those sexual problems are not correlated with objective labia minora size, which really makes it seem like size is not the problem, right? So in my opinion, what's going on probably is a lack of arousal. There was one woman who DM'd me, um, you know, because she wanted to know about a safe surgeon, and I was just asking her questions about why she was seeking surgery. And she said that she doesn't have any problems with her labia minora when she's fully aroused, but she doesn't think that she should have to be fully aroused in order to have sex. <laughs> so, if you realize that that's sort of behind some of these decisions, it's pretty disturbing, right? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, that that does point to potentially a, a sexual problem in the relationship, right? So um, men and women have different arousal patterns. I mean, arousal patterns vary from one individual to another. They vary by age. There's all sorts of factors, but also on the whole, men and women are different. And so especially a woman in relationship with a man, which is most, most women are heterosexual, um, the rate of arousal, right? Men typically can get turned on much more easily. It's sort of like an on-off switch. Um, women, it's more like um, the pilot's cabin, right? There's a lot of <laughs> knobs and dials, and it's just a lot more complicated. And um, so, for women to become aroused, there might need it might need to be a more a slower process. There might need to be more emotional connection, more sensual connection, um, and. It would make sense that in some relationships, couples can have sexual problems if the woman feels any pressure, whether, whether her male partner is putting that pressure on her or whether it's just coming from her own anxiety, but if the woman feels pressure to become aroused as quickly as her partner does, or if she lacks the confidence or the communication skills to communicate to her partner, what will help her soften and open up and feel more receptive and ready for sex?
0: Yeah, I do think that, so I tend to be skeptical sometimes about some of these stereotypes about like how fast men and women get aroused and the ease of female versus male arousal in general. Um, and one thing that I was thinking about is how a lot of the time, the way that like the traditional model works, largely I think because of sexual double standards is women wait for men to initiate but it seems like if men are the ones initiating, they sort of have a head start, you know. And I was actually looking back at my relationship in college, and our whole arrangement was basically, he said, Jessica, I always want to have sex with you. So how about you just let me know when you want to have sex, and I will just have it whenever you want. <laughs> so I actually initiated it every time we had sex. Which is funny to look back on because I think that's a little bit unusual. But the logic was that he would always be receptive to me. Meanwhile, if you think about it, a lot of people have the reverse scenario where the woman is not initiating, but then but she's supposed to always be receptive. But I think if you're the initiator, you kind of have a head start because you're the one already turned on a little when you initiate. And the other person is starting from zero. I mean, I don't, I don't
1: and know. It, I think that's a good point, and it also brings up how a person initiates. And I might believe in those stereotypes more than you do, um, just based on you know the practicalities of my experience as a marriage counselor. Um,
0: mm-hmm. it
1: doesn't mean doesn't mean I judge people who don't conform to stereotypes. It's just that certain stereotypes about things like what men versus women want in bed they they're stereotypes for a reason because people have observed patterns, right? So,
0: um, yeah.
1: you know, my, my view on that, though, is that how a person initiates, um, I think it's very common for a man to think that he's initiating because he's initiating the way that he would want, let's say, his wife to initiate with him. But it's not necessarily the way she wants initiation, right? It could be that his way of initiating feels too much too fast, and that her maybe preferred way of initiating might be more subtle, right? And that's another thing is that sometimes men don't pick up on more subtle cues um, that women are giving that are flirtatious or that would kind of uh, lead up to things. So I think you know we've kind of branched off into this, and I hope that part of the conversation is interesting to some people. But but I think the way that we got here to kind of uh, bring it back was that you were talking about people who've reached out to you and that. Um, some people who seek, some people have sought labiaplasty because they felt like their labia were, um, in, in the way, but that actually turned out to be only if they weren't properly aroused. So maybe that's more of a sexual relationship and communication issue rather than an indicator that there's anything actually obstructive about her, her anatomy. Yeah,
0: that's what I tend to think. Though, so, you know, I realize that there are extreme cases and I don't want to invalidate anyone's lived experience with that. I know I personally didn't have any problem with my labia minora when I was a teenager. So and I never had any insecurities until I saw what surgeons were saying.
1: How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise. Yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my Eight Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by Eight Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner, based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to eightsleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, and it seems like the things that you read sort of planted that seed, right? If you're young and impressionable and you are you don't have a lot of sexual experience, so you're trying to get a sense of what's normal, and you read something that says that women who look like you or are shaped like you are likely to have sexual problems, are likely to feel insecure, then it kind of plants that seed of, oh, is that how I should feel?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got the impression that I was deformed and like had some terrible, embarrassing problem. Um, and I unfortunately never watched porn as a teenager. When I finally did in my 20s, my first impression was, oh my gosh, I was lied to. So I have a little bit of a different perspective on that in that watching porn helped me realize that I was lied to and then mutilated and then gaslighted by the doctors I saw after my surgery.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of criticism of porn, and there's a lot of porn in general out there in many kinds. But for you, um, it was helpful to see how other women are shaped and realize that you were never that abnormal to begin with.
0: Yeah, Yeah. A recent study actually showed that 44% of women's labia minora in the top 25 porn videos from the top five porn websites um, protrude beyond the labia, sorry, their labia minora protrude beyond the labia majora. And that is hypertrophy according to pretty much every medical definition. (laughs) Um, So 44% of porn stars have hypertrophy.
1: Right. So is it really hypertrophy if not only is it this widespread, but also it doesn't seem to actually be the culprit or it doesn't seem to be uh, guilty in the way that, right, people are saying that this is going to be sexually unappealing. But if people like watching porn of women who have that normal variation, then, hmm.
0: Yeah, and 44%, I think, was the same number I found when I looked at the all the first Fleshlight girls that came up when I went to the Fleshlight website. So, like, I went and I I had to Google all these women to figure out like how long their labia minora are. Um, And forty three (laughs) percent is the number that have labia minora that extend beyond the labia majora, according to the Gyno Diversity Project. So these numbers are very consistent, and so it really looks like, you know, porn actually just has pretty representative labia, and I think it's a really easy scapegoat that allows people, you know, it makes it so that people don't ask questions about what doctors are doing and how maybe doctors are pushing these ideals. I, knew when,
1: we, I knew when we planned this episode that it was not going to be eligible for YouTube monetization, <laughs> meaning it's way too controversial. We're talking about very explicit material here. Um, and that's okay. I do that a lot on this podcast. Um, but While we're at it, just talking about explicit things, um, maybe there's a bridge here into the conversation about cancel culture. Before we started recording, um, you told me a story involving a cadaver. Is that something that you'd be willing to share here and then share how it was misinterpreted?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a good way for me to talk about that. I, I used inappropriate language to describe... Um, you know, an anatomic study that I did and I immediately deleted the tweet at the time and it, you know, was screenshot and used against me years later. Um, Yeah, I guess that's just, it it is scary how often that happens. And I do think that when you are tweeting a lot, when you're putting out a lot of content, you're going to make mistakes. And it's kind of scary that like, you know, you're 0.1% worst content is going to come back years later if you make another mistake. And so in this recent case, it came up because I was getting, you know, a lot of hate for talking about um, casts of trans vulvas and cis vulvas, but for basically pointing out that there's a difference in what trans and cis vulvas look like. Um, And so that's what I was really getting hate for. And um, this was so I've people have tried to cancel me a couple of times, but this was the worst case. Um, I was the Twitter main character. There were literally like tens of thousands of people, um, you know, insulting me, sending me threats. I used I used an app called the block party app which is actually really useful because what you can do is you can automatically block everybody who likes certain tweets. So you can just set a tweet. like you It's not active
1: it. anymore. It's not? No. I used it for a while too. Yeah, I know. What happened? Um, Twitter updated its algorithms with Elon Musk and now Block Party can't work. I guess they're like doing a beta test on some new thing. If you go to their website, you can probably... Test drive whatever they're working on next, but but anyway, you would mega blocked people. Oh wow, that's kind of terrible
0: because that was really yeah. important for me to be able to control the harassment that I was getting.
1: I, I know, I know the feeling.
0: Um, wow. Um, yeah, and it's really hard to deal with. Like, I think it's really easy, easy to judge how a person reacts when they have you know thousands of people attacking them. Um, It's much harder to actually be that person, I think. Absolutely. I had really bad anxiety. I think other people maybe have an easier time stepping away. But for me, when I have people on Twitter telling me, get off the app, delete your account, it makes me not want to step away. (laughs) Like, I just can't walk away from a fight. It's a bad problem.
1: Mm. So what does it do to you?
0: Um what does it do to me getting attacked like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that it, I mean, I think it like affected my nervous system sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, like it puts you in fight or flight mode. And I think I'm a little bit of a fighter. (laughs) So, so, you know, I just kept responding. And one thing that was disturbing is I was on this podcast called Blocked and and Reported. And I think they meant to be complimentary, but they kept saying that I made things worse for myself. And I really don't like that because basically they were saying that the way that I doubled down, you know, made things worse for myself. And so there's kind of this idea that like, oh, you're supposed to just capitulate or else you deserve the extreme harassment. And that's, that's kind of odd. Uh, you know, people either wanted me to capitulate or walk away. I guess I could have walked away, but then people were accusing me of being a coward. Also,
1: <laughs> right? Oh, people who are people who are determined to vilify you will find any way of twisting your behavior. You, you zig, they zag. Right, and and I discussed this with James Lindsay on a recent episode. Um, we talked about psychological warfare on episode sixty six, and uh, there's a clip of that um, that just came out on on Twitter and YouTube, where he specifically talks about the dynamics of struggle sessions and what he learned from um, studying uh, Maoist struggle sessions and how he sees those same tactics being employed in American so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, as well as in these kind of online dynamics, these these Twitter storms. Um, so anyone interested in that topic, if you haven't already listened to my episode with James Lindsay, please check that out. It's a, it's a good one. Um, but I, I completely sympathize with what you've been through online, Jessica. I've, I've been through waves of that myself. And I honestly think it's part of the reason that I was chronically ill for a year and a half, and I seem to finally be coming out of it if I'm if, I, if I'm understanding my body's signals correctly, um, because of the the role of stress, it felt like it kind of broke my nervous system. Um, and I ended up with a disorder where certain aspects of my autonomic nervous system weren't working very well. Um, so I, I understand that feeling. and I think I'm like you where I go into fight mode and um, rise to the occasion, but your stress response kicks in and um, it can be it can be terribly distracting. And it really hurts. I think that's that's the hard part, right? Is that we sometimes wish that we could just stop caring what other people think if they're going to be so uncharitable, if they're going to twist our words around. In um, the the attitude that I know I'd like to have sometimes is, I'm here for the people that I'm here for, the people who are resonating with my message the people who are you know perceiving me in the way that i'm intending to come across and who feel like they're benefiting those are the people i'm here for if there are people who are not resonating they don't like my personality they don't like my face they don't like the way i said that thing i remind them of their sister who beat them up growing up or you know whatever it is that they're going to project onto me or whatever it is that's just not fitting like i they don't need to pay attention to me like There there are other people in the world they can pay attention to. Life is precious. Life is short. I'm not for everyone. I also don't claim to be perfect, but I think there's something about when when people see leadership qualities in someone, there's this human instinct that I think kicks in. um, And I think it's more likely to kick in with people who aren't fully self-actualizing. They're not fully on their own path. Because when you're on your own path, you know how hard it is and you don't have time to waste tearing other people down right? But for people who are maybe, you know, maybe they're not taking those risks in their own life. Maybe they haven't like poured everything that they've got into their art or craft or mission or purpose. Um, It's really easy to see people who are in some kind of leadership role like you or or me and kind of put us on a pedestal and then want to knock that pedestal down. So it's kind of this like two-dimensional cardboard cutout version of a human being that lives in their mind. And uh, then there's all these assumptions that come with that, right? That just because you've assumed some kind of leadership role or people have put you in a leadership role because they follow your guidance, that that necessarily means that you think that you're perfect or that you think everyone should follow your advice. I know that's certainly not how I feel. I just feel like I'm I'm doing my mission, my purpose. It's going to click for some people. I never claim to be perfect. I never and i'm i'm kind of a reluctant leader too like people call me a hero and i kind of freak out inside because i'm like that's a lot of pressure you know i just cuz i know that when people are projecting their hopes dreams things like that onto me thinking i'm going to solve their problems that i'm always one step away from disappointing them and the moment i disappoint them there are certain individuals who i'm i'm happy i can count on to have a mature response to that and just see me as a fellow human being but there are a lot of people for whom that kind of rage and vitriol kicks in, right? That instinct to to burn the witch, <laughs> and it's scary. I've been on the receiving end of it so many times. I feel like you you encounter some of the worst aspects of humanity when you when you find yourself in a leadership role. But at the same time, you you have to adopt some level of leadership in order to get anything meaningful done. And that's what I'm really hearing is like you you had things to accomplish. And, and yep. you don't have to be a perfect person, and you don't have to be someone who people are going to agree with on every single issue in order for you to accomplish some meaningful changes to medical textbooks and board certifications.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because I haven't really thought of myself as a leader. You know, I did just start this nonprofit, and I want to be more of a leader. And also in applying to business schools, I wanted to convey that I had leadership qualities. But when I set out to try and change things in medicine, I definitely wasn't trying to lead anyone. You know, I was just trying to solve a problem to protect women. Um, And I have just, you know, I just did that all on my own. So I wasn't really leading. I was just trying to influence
1: um, I think that is the e- essence of leadership, though, if I can kind of point it out that way. Because I I also, like, I'm not on a mission to lead people either. That sounds really sinister. Like, I don't actually trust the intentions of anyone with the intention to lead. You know, if you're in it for fame or glory, let me tell you, as someone who has, like, mid-level fame, micro-celebrity, whatever you want to call it, as someone who's known to, I-, I would say, like, tens of thousands of people, maybe— um, it's it, I do not recommend it. Um, being this type of famous is not fun. It's like I'm not wealthy from it. <laughs> I just have a constantly overflowing inbox and lots of requests for my time and also a lot of pressure to fulfill people's expectations and a lot of vitriol when I let them down. Um, but sorry, all of that said, I think I had to get that off my chest today. but um, but I think that, But people who truly possess leadership qualities, they're not setting out to lead because those who set out to lead, you know, that's kind of their ego getting in the way. But it's people like you who see a need in the world. They see, oh, there's some information missing. There's a problem to be solved. And they just kind of take it upon themselves to take whatever steps they can to solve it. They don't wait for anyone's permission. They don't sit back and complain. They just do it. And other people look to that person and they see leadership and sometimes they follow.
0: Well, I do complain a lot on social media. I have had to reflect some on my you know, social media strategy because it may not always be the best. It's really hard because I guess over the years, I've experimented with a lot of different types of messaging. And I think one trap I get into is a lot of the times being controversial actually gets more attention. And so I think if you're playing with controversy just a little, like if you're just being a little edgy, then it's easy to one day maybe take a step too far and then the next thing you know you're getting canceled.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> but, it's playing with fire. Um
0: uh, yeah, I think I think also that sometimes, you know, I have my personal trauma behind my advocacy and so sometimes I let that Influence my judgment in a way that makes me less sensitive to other issues. You know, like the thing that I got in trouble for with the trans vulvas was caused by me observing that the trans post-vulvas consistently have tiny labia minora, and um, they were included in a vulva diversity project. And to me, that's sort of similar to including a bunch of breast implants in a breast diversity project. And if you can imagine, you know, showing a breast diversity project to a teenage girl that includes breast implants versus not, like I personally, if I had a teenage girl that I was trying to help and educate about her body, I would give her the the breast diversity project without the implants, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> absolutely. What you're saying shouldn't be controversial, even to someone whose views on the trans issue are, you know, way to the left of my own, for example, um, not that this should be a left or right issue. It's a medical ethics issue. But besides that, though, um, absolutely you're right. and And these images matter. I've seen I, I don't know if it was screenshots or what, but I saw someone sharing um, reactions that young girls were having to Dylan Mulvaney, and I, I hate to give him any more attention than he's already gotten, but uh, but in this context, I think it's relevant because as many people may be familiar, Dylan Mulvaney is a trans-identified um, social media superstar who's gotten a lot of attention and is a very, very skinny male. And males typically have much lower body fat percentages than females because female bodies are designed to withstand pregnancy and breastfeeding. We need to carry fat on our bodies for babies. We're designed that way, right? And so all these girls were posting about how they wish they were skinny like Dylan Mulvaney, the trans girl. So absolutely, it matters what images we show our young girls and boys for that matter, but especially girls because they're really susceptible to stuff around body image. And if we're showing them Surgically altered bodies, or if we're showing them male bodies, then then it's just more for them to negatively compare themselves to.
0: Yeah, and I just think it's so. My whole stance is that you know the the quote unquote beauty standard that labia minora should be hidden is not actually reflective of men's preferences. It is rather reflective of a modesty culture that has made it so that you know, labia minora are considered inappropriate because they're involved in female sexual pleasure. And if you look at, like, a lot of, like, Western art, you know, typically you don't see labia minora protruding. Um, In Australia, they had a law that didn't allow labia minora to, to show in men's magazines because it was considered too explicit. And Playboy typically didn't show them for the same reason, and there were some guys on one of my TikToks that commented, oh, yeah, that's why once I found Hustler, I never looked at Playboy again. And I just thought it was i just thought it was a bit funny. I mean, men have all different preferences. There's nothing wrong. You know, there's obviously nothing wrong with innies and, you know, all types of vulvas are normal and, you know, appreciated. But it is just interesting to me how I think that this beauty standard has its roots in you know, cultural suppression of female sexuality um, much more than any real aesthetic standard, because it doesn't really make much sense because, you know, the labia minora are reflective of, you know, they tend to get bigger with puberty. They're reflective of healthy hormones and they engorge with arousal. So it wouldn't make sense to find them sticking out unattractive and ask for, I mean, I guess the only thing would be like you know c- conceptualizing genitals in a supli- simplistic way where you think oh if they're hidden that's feminine and for them to stick out is masculine you know like that but anyway in general it doesn't make sense to me and in general I think it's a little disturbing how they they make all the post-op trans vulvas in this cookie cutter way they also are not anatomically correct or a lot of them And I think, you know, they've improved their surgical techniques. But one thing that's been disturbing for me over the years is hearing about doctors who couldn't tell the difference. So like a long time ago in 2011, when I first had what happened to me recognized for the first time, a doctor told me that I could go see a trans surgeon to get repaired and that the trans surgeon was so good that a doctor hadn't been able to tell the difference. And then I remember looking at the post-op results and being sort of horrified that the doctor couldn't tell the difference because basically I had for years been going to the doctor, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong with me and having them tell me like, oh, you're normal. You look normal. And like, I was obviously mutilated. And so then when I see anyway sorry I just I just think that doctors should know what like intact female bulbas look like
1: sorry but it sounds like a bogus advertising slogan to me it's like I can't believe it's not butter it's like that right doctors can't tell the difference it's <laughs> does anybody really believe that
0: yeah and now just saying that I could tell the difference got me all kinds of hate right so just just saying I can tell the difference between a trans post-op vulva and a cis vulva got me a, a ton of ire. Granted, I didn't need to say, you know, a, the mistake that I made as I said, a lot of post op trans vulvas look mutilated. And that was, I think, you know, unnecessarily mean. I, I didn't mean it that way when I said it, you know, <laughs> because I was I was thinking more of, you know, like what it means if people can't tell the difference between mutilated anatomy, mutilated cis anatomy and intact anatomy. And I was thinking more in terms of, okay, if someone like me gets harmed, I want them to be able to go to the doctor and I want the doctor to ask them if they're okay. You know, that's what I want to happen. Um, So I was thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about the post-op trans woman who feels like I'm saying something negative about her body. You know, and I'm not meaning to do that. However, where I draw the line is with, like, science. So I, so my position on trans issues is I do want to be as inclusive as possible, but I think there has to be a limit. And that limit for me is, okay, if we're talking about female anatomy, they don't have it. You know, so that's my thing.
1: As a therapist, I've gotten up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organify makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water, 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and three grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com, That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com and use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Absolutely. And there is a lot of um, pressure on normal and fair people to essentially reinforce other people's delusions or self-image, to put it more politely, about themselves as if that is necessary for their well-being, right? So here you were speaking truth. You were saying something honest. As someone who has researched this issue, as someone who has studied female anatomy and looked at many vulvas in the process of discovering what is normal and healthy and how to educate doctors properly, you have more expertise than maybe the average woman in uh, looking at vulvas, and you were able to tell a difference. You stated that matter-of-factly. Uh, it's, it seems pretty self-evident that there would be a difference. Uh, it, there's definitely an interior difference, right? Because it's not possible for males to have the organ of the, the vagina, the uterus, the you know, all the other female reproductive organs, males cannot have those. But even externally, you're able to see a difference between something that is manufactured and something (laughs) that a person uh, possesses naturally. But you were basically asked to reinforce people's delusions, right? To pretend that you can't see with your own eyes and discern with your own senses and knowledge what you know to be true. And I find that very concerning from a mental health standpoint that anyone is being pressured into lying and denying the evidence of their own senses as if that's necessary for other people to be well. I question the model of wellness that says that there are certain classes of people who need everyone else to lie to them in order for them to be okay.
0: Yeah. And also my criticism was was actually of surgeons, but people thought I was criticizing trans people. Right, but I was actually just criticizing the work of surgeons, saying you know they're making them all look this particular way, and I think it's ironic that what they call unfeminine and embarrassing is what makes it easiest for me to pick a female vulva out of a lineup, you know, (laughs) because they never make like they don't make like large labia minora for the trans women. So I think that's funny. But yeah, I I do think it's alarming how how much hate there was and how it got directed at me. Um, I think it's interesting because I think the worst hate actually gets directed by, sorry, it gets directed at people who are actually not really anti-trans, you know? <laughs> you know, so I am, I was publicly branded a turf and made an example of, right. And I became the Twitter main character and, The host of Blocked and Reported said she has seen some takedowns in her day, but the weight of Mount Everest came down on me, right? And so I think that's interesting because I think the reason why is because I am not really, you know, I haven't taken a side. And I think that's why I was vulnerable. And I think that they, you know, they use me as an example because I'm basically on the left you know, I'm not a conservative. I'm a woman and I'm a women's rights activist. So I'm pretty like superficially affiliated with the left. And so I think that's why they went after me and they don't go after people who are blatantly transphobic, you know?
1: Well, they certainly do blatantly go after people. They they label transphobic. To me, that word has no meaning. because it's, it's a made-up word to describe uh, the phenomenon of anyone having any degree of issue, concern, disagreement, um, or hesitation toward a, a novel concept they made up to describe something that requires radical social reorganization and has a lot of ripple effects on a lot of people. So the words like transphobia have no impact on me, but I hear how you say, like, it does leave you in a vulnerable position because you do see people on, I mean, I'm guessing both sides of the political aisle, but especially people on the left as, um, you know, people whose, whose opinions you care about. And so, Given that you're coming from this place of wanting people to see you as inclusive and fair-minded um, and caring about what other people think, regardless of their identity, um, that could leave you really vulnerable to hurt. You know, and and part of how I've managed um, some of the the hurt and fear of the things that have happened to me has been through making some decisions about, you know, what behavior I'm willing to tolerate, and that um, if certain people are going to come at me in a certain way, um, that, you know, to me that sort of disqualifies their opinion because I'm a pretty fair-minded person myself. I don't go skewering people. I don't go doxing and threatening and harassing and dogpiling people. I try to be pretty charitable and I criticize ideas. You know, I do scrutinize, but I criticize ideas and behaviors and actions and trends. I don't scrutinize people. Right. And so if someone's going to direct that kind of energy toward me and treat me in such an uncharitable and hostile manner that I would personally never treat someone that way myself, then for me, that's a little bit of – that's a bit of a barrier. But it doesn't mean that things don't get through and that they don't hurt.
0: Yeah. I mean, what they do is character assassination. Mm -hmm. Um, So they went after everything that they could go after. They dug up every single mistake. So they dug up, you know, last time people tried to cancel me, which was over me being quote unquote racist. I'm not racist, but because my commitment is always to female anatomy, what I did is I commented that a mid sagittal plane illustration of a female pelvis had a clitoris that looked like it was amputated. And I said, it looked exactly like female genital mutilation. You know, and I said it in a clumsy way. And I pointed out the illustrator was Nigerian <laughs> and he did actually censor the external genitals on purpose. So it was pur- purposely shown that way. <laughs> and everyone was celebrating it because it was helping promote diversity. Um, and to me, it's just disturbing like that, that no one cared if it looked like female genital mutilation or not. <laughs> wow. Um, so I got, people tried to cancel me for that. Um, and what, yeah, that, that just got completely out of hand, you know, and there was even a post on Instagram, Instagram where a bunch of doctors piled on and said that I was wrong and that the illustration didn't have an external clitoris because it was off center, (laughs) which it's not, you can see the urethra is right there. So it's actually, it gets a little scary how people act online. Like they will just pile on if they don't like a person. And I think over the years I have managed to anger a lot of people or just get on a lot of people's bad side, which is why the daily show said that I had rubbed a few people the wrong way (laughs) and they put it on my clitoris trophy. So it's like, it's like a joke, you know, (laughs) Uh, but so, you know, that got brought up in March when they were canceling me. And so, you know, racist and then necrophiliac,
1: right. So it's actually weird because... (laughs) And necrophiliac because you inspected a cadaver as part of your medical research, just to clarify. Yeah. And racist because you criticized a drawing made by a Nigerian that showed a a female body that had been mutilated. I mean, that's what it looks like.
0: I mean, really, it it was censored and he admitted it. He said it was to prevent embarrassment. Mm -hmm. But to me, it looks exactly like female genital mutilation. And because I was harmed because of ignorance caused by you know, misrepresenting the clitoris. I, you know, I just get bothered by these things. Um, yeah. So they also said I sexually harassed a porn star. Um, so they were calling me a predator, you know, because a porn star claimed that she looked like a trans post-op vulva. And I told her she didn't, you know, and I probably wasn't that nice about it. I said she couldn't pick her own vulva out of a lineup, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, uh, so I got in
1: trouble for that, and then at one point, when I was, doing- I mean, you got to use humor in some of these situations. People are saying the most absurd things. She's saying that she can't tell the difference between her own body and someone else's. I mean, I don't blame you for making a joke.
0: I mean, the the difference is is very clear because the trans post op vulva doesn't look female at all, and she's claiming that she looks like it. And
1: it sounds like just um, virtue signaling. Yeah, and I think – I'm
0: sure she got a lot of new OnlyFans subscribers from Mm. doing that, you know, Mm because, like, her tweet against me went viral. Uh.
1: Right. It makes you wonder how much she's doing it for the – yeah, because if she's making her living on OnlyFans and a lot of the people – if her target audience is is people who are on a – you know, who have a certain political bent –
0: Yeah. So cancel culture can get really bad. And one thing that bothers me is the victim blame around cancel culture. And so I can't confirm this, but so recently, so I will just talk about it briefly. Recently, I was offered a $100,000 Dean scholarship to Yale School of Management and it was rescinded. um, And it was rescinded at least partly because of my social media, which they said was unprofessional and Im- immature and disrespectful. And I, I won't pretend that my social media is always perfect. Um, however, a friend reached out and um, basically they said that, well, allegedly someone on admissions said that the problem was I went viral for anti-trans tweets. And allegedly she said that it wasn't a problem if I had anti-trans beliefs, it was a problem that I went viral and I got all this negative publicity that they didn't want to be associated with. And I can't, you know, I can't confirm this, but it sort of, it was a little bit discouraging to hear, right? Because I would, I heard this when I was trying to figure out whether to appeal it or not. Um, And I do think that, you know, I have like now when people Google my name, they see that I'm a racist, sexual harasser, you know, and the other thing that was really hard is they use my trauma against me, you know, so like for me, I've gone public with this very personal traumatic event that, you know, was really, really hard and I've done it because I wanted to stop it from happening to others. And it's been really painful for me to have my story be public and to, you know, fight this battle. But, you know, the idea is that it's justice for myself if I can help protect others. So that's why I do it. And I think that it has helped me come to peace with what happened to me. Um, But it's hard when that gets painted as a quote unquote villain origin story, you know. And when people like people were saying, I only cared about myself and that I was, you know, dissecting cadavers with my dad because I have a sexual fetish. Like, you know, the whole thing was actually, like, really hard. Like, for me, you know, after everything that happened and, like, dissecting clitorises, like, with my own dad. I mean, it's all awkward and, like, kind of difficult, but I did it for my mission. And then to have that painted in this twisted way... Yeah, I don't know what to say about it, but cancel culture is a problem. I I don't know what should be done, but I do think that like we should not blame people who get attacked by it because I think, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And when the cancel culture people come at you, they just, they figure out how to make you look like the worst person ever, you know?
1: And there's, there's so much self-righteousness in that. Right, it's like you know I'm not a Christian, but there's that quote that Jesus was said to have have said, you know, watch out for this the log in your own eye before you um, criticize the splinter in your brother's eye, or you know, let he who is with it without sin cast the first stone. And I do think that humility is a really mm-hmm. counterbalancing virtue that's needed in these times, and it really takes a lot of Hubris to think of oneself as beyond criticism, you know, and and to turn that kind of laser critical focus onto someone else as if you yourself, uh, you know, could never make a a human mistake or rub someone the wrong way. So um, I think it's a really painful and kind of toxic environment out there right now. And I'm sorry for what you've been through, but I think that. You've, you've managed to accomplish some incredible things in spite of it, and I hope you keep going. So on that note, what are you, um, now now that you are in this unfortunate situation where you're no longer going to be following through with your plan to um, attend Yale, what are you up to next? And, and is there anything you're working on?
0: Um, well, I have to work on my nonprofit, um, and I was going to apply for some normal jobs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> boring ones and hopefully the cancel stuff out there won't hurt me too badly
1: okay um so you're working on the sexual health equity project and mm-hmm. is that just a continuation of what you're doing with the advocacy for better coverage of vulver anatomy
0: yeah I'm just trying to incorporate other people and hopefully raise money and you know figure out how to Fund like different projects to help get people educated. You know, um, it would be nice if I had my own posters made because even though I got posters updated, they're still not as good as I would like them to be. Um, You know, I would like to fund research if that were possible, you know, things like that because there are still things that need to be done. Um, I made a whole list of all the things that I would like to do.
1: And if there is anyone listening who might have a job for you, since it sounds like you're also looking for sort of a a day job, um, what what type of work are you looking for?
0: Um, Well, honestly, I was thinking consulting. Um, I don't know. Otherwise, I'm interested in healthcare startups because there is so much wrong with healthcare. And I've come across so many problems in medicine. So. That was my goal in going to Yale was to try and figure out how to build a company that could help solve some of the root causes behind, you know, how there could be uh, a source of systemic negligence that just remains constant over so many years with so many people getting hurt and no learning taking place. I think that's a really fundamental systemic problem in medicine that is not restricted to vulva's.
1: Absolutely. Well, I hope that lots of opportunities flow your way. I think that you've, you've demonstrated your character and your ability to accomplish things just starting from nothing but pure motivation. So, um, I I trust that that'll work out well for you. Um, so where can people find you and your projects?
0: Um, so I'm on Instagram at Jessica underscore and underscore pin P I N and that's also my handle on TikTok. And I am on Twitter at Metaclit, though I'm tempted to change my handle. You know, I've been thinking about what about my social media is not professional, right? Because Yale said it was not professional. And um, I don't know how professional Metaclit is, even though it makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I had descriptive. it. Descriptive.
1: Yeah. Okay. And and do you have a website for the Sexual Health Equity Project?
0: I don't. I yeah, I haven't I need to get that made.
1: Okay. Um, well, any other links you want to share, send them my way. They'll be in the show notes. Jessica, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. You too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist Podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit SomeTherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at SomeKindOfTherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care at NoWayBackFilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecoraro for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.